0: So in 2018, a year before you came back to live in the UK, um, we all went to our first Pride in London. Can you remember that experience and tell me a bit about how it felt like?
1: Um, It felt quite overwhelming, like how busy it was and how many just like openly queer people were about celebrating and it was the first time that I had kind of been very out there with my identity like I was wearing a trans flag on my shoulders because I mean
0: it's the first time I suppose we'd also experienced that extent of trans visibility hadn't we you know with with other people yeah. marching loud and, and proud
1: yeah definitely
0: and some of them uh, invited you to join a bit of the um parade, yeah, didn't they? I didn't
1: manage because there was like all blocked off to get in but they gave us like um they had spare wristbands to like get in to be part of the parade, and they gave them to us, but we couldn't find a way to get in.
0: <laughs> but how did it feel seeing, you know, others seeing people like you who were loud about it and, and proud about it and properly visible, having you know spent the last two years yourself living in the Middle East?
1: I remember it just feeling really lovely because I think I remember one of them. Um, There was like a trans group as part of the parade who walked past us and one of them came up to me and gave me a hug and said they loved me and it was just really like is that kind of unconditional love that you feel for just other members of your community like strangers but you know they've gone through the same thing so you care about them that kind of thing it felt very Safe.
0: So total strangers coming out of the the crowd and hugging you and telling that they loved you unconditionally, not despite who you were, but because of who you were. I'm guessing that was, was validating?
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: And was there... Did you feel the contrast between... You know, we were only there on holiday that summer, weren't we? Did you feel the contrast between where you'd been and where you'd be going back to and this atmosphere of
1: unconditional love that you were experiencing there on that day um i felt the contrast to some extent but there was also that was the year that um there was a group of turfs who like came out in front of the parade before the parade officially started spewing anti-trans stuff so you know you saw all of that and then you saw all the stuff that came after it so it was kind of a mixed bag so the uk isn't paved with rainbows yet no <laughs> So, when you came
0: back a year later to live in the u k as a as a gay trans male um what did that feel like? I don't know that's quite a hard question to answer okay I mean, so part of it, I suppose was coming back to live in the u k having lived abroad for nine years, mm. so regardless of all of all of the other stuff, that's gonna be hard, isn't it? Yeah. um but we made the decision as a family, didn't we that the best place, the safest place for you was somewhere where you could be you regardless of what it meant for the rest of us as a family so you were back in the UK living outwardly openly without daily fear or or, um, ostracization or or kind of shame um, as a gay trans young man I'm wondering whether that dawned on you because it's what you'd wanted wasn't it for uh, for a long time you wanted to be back in the UK I'm wondering what the reality felt
1: like I mean there was still fear and ostracization because it's not easy being trans at anywhere especially in the UK to be honest but um, it meant that I could start like I could go on hormones and um, I could legally change my name like gender marker on my ID and stuff like that so that felt like a big thing but it was still quite a while like being in the UK that I would never get gendered correctly in public so it wasn't All that good, and it was kind of difficult coming back here and not really knowing anyone. And the first year, I wasn't I wasn't in education. I was just at home, and and I didn't really know people, and I didn't really know how to meet people and know people. Um, And I was quite scared of people after being kind of isolated for quite a while. So the first year wasn't great coming back here, other than like getting on hormones. No, I did. I get on hormones in my first year back. Yeah yeah after a while yeah after about um the four months i think four or five months because we came back in end of july and i started at end of january yeah can you yeah. you
0: had your first appointment with uh, gender care um with the gender specialist in november yeah yeah in november and then started um t in, in in january so that that happened quite quickly i suppose yeah. tell me about that process you know going to see um, the gender specialist, and therefore starting the transition uh, medically, officially, if you like, um, on top of the um, personal, private transition
1: that you would commenced years before. Um, I remember like expecting it to feel like a really big deal, and to feel like like once I'd had my first appointment, or once I'd like been prescribed the hormones, or once I'd had my first injection, for it to like feel suddenly like a massive change, but it didn't really. It just kind of, it felt a bit underwhelming. And it wasn't until I started noticing changes on the hormones that it felt more real. What
0: about getting to see the, um, the gender specialist? Cause we'd, we'd got you onto the waiting list for the Tavistock's clinic. Um, They're a gender identity um, clinic as soon as you got back to the UK mm-hmm. so that summer um has am still any- not through to that no you still <laughs> yeah. had nothing through on that yeah. so that's been a number of years wait yeah but we were lucky weren't we? we were fortunate enough to be able to afford private um care for this were you kind of aware of the significance of that and and how definitely
1: uh, yeah um it was really fortunate that I was able to get on it like get a diagnosis for gender dysphoria, prescription for testosterone as soon as like as quickly as I did when I was back here. But even like most people I know in the trans community, it's quicker for them to like fundraise and make a GoFundMe to raise the money to go privately for gender care than it is to wait for the NHS waiting times. How does that make you feel? Just frustrated, but I mean like it just it just feels kind of pointless because if the if the waiting times are so long. That you can just fum go privately quicker. Um
0: There's something really wrong there. Yeah. Uh, um and then you talked about hormones. So I remember we kind of perhaps more excited about the hormones than you were at the start in in a way. And, um in that we, we wanted you to record, didn't we? We wanted yeah. you to record your 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 voice on a regular basis to have this audio diary of your transition. Yeah. Did you see it as
1: a more kind of functional thing? Yeah, definitely. It wasn't like um I didn't want to have a kind of I guess digital scrapbook of um my physical transition it was just like um I thought of it kind of like oh this is just me going through my proper puberty and you wouldn't in puberty record your voice every day to hear it going deeper that's a good point um yeah I know that some trans people do want to do that and that's the right thing for them but for me I didn't really feel like that was something I wanted to do. And even now like I wouldn't I wouldn't feel comfortable hearing my voice from before T, so I wouldn't have wanted to have it recorded somewhere. No, you said you're nowhere you're listening to this podcast as well. Yeah, don't I don't you? even like listening to my own voice anyway. <laughs> like I'm more comfortable I don't have like dysphoria around my voice now, but I just don't like listening to it. And did did you did you notice um quickly the wider effects of being on testosterone? Um not quickly because it's quite a gradual... it was quite a gradual thing. Um, what was more, like, a big deal for me is, like, people who I... who I saw for the first time, like, quite a few months after starting hormones, who knew me before I started them, they commented on how dramatic a change it had been, not only in my voice but in, like, my face and all that, and because that kind of change is so gradual I didn't really notice it that much. Um, but i remember like when you came back from jordan you noticed a massive difference because i'd been on hormones for like three or four months by that point um so but, i saw you in february didn't I? and then i saw you again at the end of april so yeah, it was only like yeah, two exactly. two two and a half months in fact yeah um and but if you're like like even like mum because she was with me every day she didn't notice the changes as much because it was gradual and if you're it's like if you're like um if you watch someone growing up and you're around them the whole time they're growing up then you don't really notice it as much as if you're like you see them when they're little and then you don't see them for several years and then see them again you know
0: what were there any of the changes from your um, hormones from going on tea that most excited you were there any that you were like oh this is cool this is what I really wanted.
1: Or was there not that sort of emotional engagement with it? I don't know. There wasn't that much excitement like about the changes. It was just kind of like um, relief as things happened. Relief rather than excitement. Yeah. Where was the biggest relief? Um, I think the biggest relief was when my voice was just noticeably male. Because um, then I would get, like, gendered correctly if I was on the phone, you know? Mm-hmm. And then even in public, even if I got misgendered at first, when I started talking, occasionally people would, like, correct themselves, you know? Because a voice is a big thing. I remember Phoebe's struggles around um, being misgendered often took place
0: on the phone, didn't they? Mm-hmm. Because there all she had to communicate, who she was, was her voice. Yeah. Um... And so for you, that was a a big deal. When when your voice said loud and proud, I am a man, then you were relieved.
1: Yeah, well, it's just like being able to pass is quite a big deal because it means that your gender identity isn't like a big thing anymore because people just see you and know you're a guy and then this doesn't have to matter. Tell
0: me about the significance of um, your name. Might sound like a weird question, but um you know cis people are given their name by their parents before they're even conscious of it and then inhabit that name whether they like it or not um for the rest of their life often um how has your name and your relationship with your name um changed over the years
1: I know for a lot of trans people, the name is a big thing and they spend, like, a really long time thinking about it um, and pick something that has a lot of emotional value to them. Um, But for me, it was just kind of quite functional again. Like, I just... um, There was a name that I picked um, before you lot kind of came round, but I just picked that quite quickly and didn't put much much thought into it. But but then when you... um, when you and mum kind of caught up with where I was at, um, I just kind of asked you what you would have called me if I was assigned male at birth, and you said either Jack or Edward, and Edward's a really shit name. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, Johnny Edwards, who happened to be listening to this. (laughs) Yeah, so I just kind of went with Jack, and then gradually, like, as I started getting called Jack, it just started feeling more me and then I got
0: used to it and then yeah and so with with Phoebe it was different wasn't it we all I remember the four of us did this kind of list, chart didn't yeah. we we each did our own list and then we got it down into a short list and yeah. then we each voted on the short list but she's like that isn't she she prefers to think things out more yeah. yeah so Jack wasn't a big deal we kind of said these were the two names we would have called you and you said, well, I don't like that name but I do like this and so yeah. that's where
1: we are today what about your second name Second, then we put a bit more thought into you because we wanted it to be something Indian because I'm part Indian and like my middle name before um, my my middle name you gave me at birth was also an Indian name, so we wanted that and like Phoebe has that as well. Um, so and we'd thought really carefully about that, that um name assigned at birth as well, yeah. the Indian name. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we put more thought into that, and that was more of a collaborative effort between me, you and mum. So Jack Krishna Savage. Yeah. Did it take a, a while for that to, to seem like you, or did you put on those clothes pretty quickly and they fitted? Uh, it was pretty quick. The thing with middle names is they don't get used much, and I don't really see the point of them. <laughs> I mean, the only reason I see the point of it for me is because um, it's like showing a part of my heritage. <laughs>
0: And what was your ex- early experience of trans healthcare? Um, how effective was the
1: medical support you received at that time? Um, well, like through gender care it was very good. Um, it was the, we only had one like appointment with the gender specialist before I got a diagnosis. He was of, amazing, wasn't he? Yeah, he was, before I got a diagnosis of dysphoria. And then he gave me, a, he doesn't do this anymore, but um, I think it was like, he stopped doing this, like, uh, two months after I saw him, so I was quite lucky. He gave me, a, um, like, a temporary prescription for testosterone until I had seen the endocrinologist, because the endocrinologist's waiting time was quite long. Um, so... It was a pretty grooning appointment, I remember. Yeah, but it has to be, yeah. you know? It was... I mean, he was lovely, but it has to be very in-depth and, like, quite personal.
0: And I remember him being, like... Bowled over with quite
1: how incontrovertible your your case was, how convincing. Yeah, he he said that um, it was quite an easy decision, and then he just kind of like within the next week, I got the report. He like he emailed it to me and all that, so yeah, it was quite quick and easy. But then with in terms of like trans healthcare, with like like through the NHS, just in terms of healthcare, like when um, because I got my testosterone prescription easily enough from um, gender care but then I had to get it um administered um at, by my GP that was a saga and a half oh yeah it <laughs> took <it>? several <laughs> like I got the prescription in November and it wasn't until the end of January that I got my first injection because they were so reluctant to do anything they didn't know any- I was their first trans patient they had no idea what they were doing um so think it was prejudice or ignorance both right yeah um so that's a while and then even when my GP started injecting and then by that point they were also they had a shared care agreement with the private gender clinics they were giving me NHS prescriptions for the hormones um and then they were injecting them but they clearly didn't understand um because they kept like because of like, if the nurse was ill or if they were too busy, they would reschedule my injection appointments. For, like, a week or two weeks later. Then, exactly, and yeah. which doesn't, it doesn't work like that. And they wouldn't do that for, like, for, like, other injections, like, other medical... For insulin or no. whatever else. So, no. yeah, they kept doing that, which meant, like, my hormones were quite off balance and it was quite difficult emotionally and all of that. Um I remember a couple of times we had to pay for a private like community nurse to come yeah, over and they rescheduled scheduled for like 2 weeks later yeah. and that just wouldn't have worked. Yeah, and then um they, they they would quibble whenever the dose changed as well. Yeah, they would. Yeah, and um cuz I was seeing an endocrinologist who would like look over blood test results and then decide on dose changes or whatever. But yeah, and then because and then it got to the point where I was my dose was um, I can't remember what it was but it was every two weeks that I was having the injections and then sometimes my GP would reschedule it for like a week later and when it's every two weeks the injection you really can't do that like if it's right now my dose is a, it's a different kind of testosterone I have them every 12 weeks so if it's like a few days off or a week off that probably won't make a big difference but when it's every two weeks then a week makes a big difference um, so I remember from the advice of my endocrinologist who had written to my gp asking them to teach me to self-inject because that's what a lot of trans men do and my endocrinologist had advised this mm-hmm. um but my gp and the nurse at my gp just refused to teach me how to self-inject but they were also not giving my me my injections <laughs> on time so i went to 5016 street which is like a um lgbt sexual health clinic in london And they have a trans clinic every Wednesday. Um, and I went there and they taught me how to self-inject. And then I started self-injecting so that I could actually get my injections on time. And also with, um, with, like, healthcare from the NHS point of view, I wanted to go on birth control to, like, stop periods. Because testosterone doesn't always stop periods. And if it does, it takes a while. Um, and I specifically asked them on the advice of my endocrinologist. I specifically asked for, a um a pill that didn't have estrogen in it that was progesterone based and they prescribed me a pill Said this is progesterone based and all that and then like six maybe like nine or ten months into my testosterone um, treatment um, my endocrinologist said like your levels aren't nearly high enough there's something wrong and he asked me what like what the pill they had given me was and it turns out they'd given me an estrogen one brilliant yeah And that isn't even like an ignorance about trans stuff thing. It was just like, surely, like, they had told me it was progesterone only. I'd asked for it to be progesterone only and they should know what's in the medication they prescribed. Like, yeah, it's just frustrating. And there were other things, just like whenever I had any kind of ailment or problem, like I remember once I had like a a cold that went on for like three or four months and they just said, they just blamed it on my hormones and refused to look into it. Uh, we
0: we talked before about how binary society is. Do you was your experience that, that healthcare is is often quite binary, and if you don't fit into binary, because you're you're a, a man with a womb, for instance, that,
1: that that there's there's not the provision specific for your needs. Yeah, because I think um, is it like a cervical smear test or something, which every AFAB person, unless they've had a hysterectomy needs to have, um, at certain points, like, in adulthood and all that, and I should have had one at this point, but I haven't, haven't been given the opportunity because, um, I'm a guy, but, like, so on, um, I remember, because we moved, I moved recently to a different area of London, so I had to register with a new GP, and on the, like, form, there was only an option for male or female, um, so obviously I put male, but then the section about cervical smear tests and that and menstrual health and like stuff like that you could only answer if you'd selected female so it was like really frustrating that um yeah so your driving license now says male and
0: that's the most official piece of id that yeah. you have and then your passport still
1: says uh, I think it's expired by this point, to be honest. But you've got your deed poll, yeah, which legally yeah, registers your I, new name. I got a new job recently, and to like show proof of right to work in the UK, I had to show them my old passport with my old name and old gender marker alongside my deed poll, which is never nice having to do that, so I do need to get around to getting a new passport. And a gender recognition certificate, a GRC? That's really difficult to get. Um, I've read stories of people who have been refused one because they haven't had bottom surgery, right, yeah, so again, that's rooted in a binary, isn't it? Yeah, it's a binary of like if you have um this set of genitalia, then you can't possibly be this gender, and so we can't give you this legal certificate for that and all that stuff, yeah, and you made the conscious decision, I think quite early on
0: that you wanted top surgery, yeah. Why was that so important to
1: you so early on? Well, dysphoria around my chest was a massive thing. Um, And I think for... At least for all trans guys that I've met and I know, top surgery is something all of them want. Um, It's less common for trans men to opt for bottom surgery. And there's loads of reasons for that, which I can go into in a bit, I guess. But... um, yeah, it's, it's very common for trans men to want top surgery. Um, and you want, wanted this so much, didn't you?
0: This was yeah. so, so existential for you yeah. in many ways.
1: I mean, I couldn't... Um, before top surgery, like, binding is really horrible. <laughs> it's really uncomfortable. And, like, um, when I was going to art college, and, like, you're not meant to wear your binder for more than eight hours a day... Um, and preferably you're meant to wear it for six hours or less but that's just not possible if you're going if like if you're working for instance or if you're going like if you're in education because I would like be out for 10 to 12 hours a day um and obviously binding for all of that and in summer that was horrible (laughs) um and I would be I'd have to wear like really baggy clothes over my binder and often like a hoodie as well as a t-shirt even in summer so it was really horrible um so it was like a big necessity for me to get surgery as soon as i could and that was a a costly thing wasn't it you know if you'd had to wait for
0: that on the nhs yeah but at this point you hadn't even had your first assessment come through and you still haven't so whilst not all trans people choose or or need surgery or hormones Mm. a lot do, and it's life. It is life or death. Yeah. Um. In many cases, um. Yeah. So waiting,
1: um, is. I wouldn't have been able to wait longer. Maybe not. Not more than a year or two longer. I don't think. But like I said, even for surgery, which is really expensive, people fundraise for it mm. way quicker than a waiting list, like than the NHS waiting list would take. <laughs>
0: And how did it feel when you um, finally
1: had that um surgery that you'd wanted so much? How did it feel afterwards? Again, I kind of like, I was expecting to kind of wake up from surgery and for it to feel like this massive thing. Um, and then for it to be like a massive high for like ages and ages afterwards and for it to solve all my problems. But um, I was just very groggy when I woke up, <laughs> like in and out of sleep for ages. And then also you're not... Um, I had like really thick bandages over my chest and then on top of that I had a compression binder and it was very uncomfortable and I was kind of hunched over. You came up here to Scotland to convalesce. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also the first time I saw my chest when they took the bandages off a week after surgery, um, like I felt like crying because it looked so scary and weird and I it was hard to tell because it was also quite swollen because it was so soon after the surgery. Um, it was hard to tell whether I liked it or not or whether it was what whether it looked how I wanted it to look because yeah and I remember like emailing one of the nurses saying oh I'm worried about how this looks and I'm saying just wait until the swelling goes down and <laughs> I'm sure you feel differently and they were right <laughs> like I think um it was a few days after that that the swelling did start to go down and then I noticed and I quite I liked it um we were so excited for you just like we were when you started hormones excited in a
0: different way from your own excitement obviously mm-hmm. i remember one of the key points in my own learning about um the trans experience and especially um the trans male experience was uh, seeing that episode of queer eye um mm. where um it was a trans man who's styler had, yeah yeah um who'd had surgery and
1: um how, was looking down at his chest for the first time yeah, and, like, and I cried. Yeah, and I, I didn't just cried. It. It. I cried at that and I thought, oh, this is so beautiful. This I, is so amazing. I didn't feel that. I just, um, when I saw it for the first time, I was like, that looks really gross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think also in America it happens differently because he saw it for the first time as he was waking up from surgery. But when I woke up from surgery, it was already all bandaged up. Right. I saw it for the first time a week later. After a week of not being able to shower and like sleeping in a really uncomfortable position and having the really tight compression binder on and really stinking because it was like Yeah, you're not selling it (laughs) here. Also in those
0: first couple of years that you were back, um, I wonder, having been so excluded by so many parts of your society um, in the Middle East, um, how do your wider family and friends respond to your trans identity and to your transition?
1: Um all my friends have been good about it. I think I pick friends pretty well, which is probably why I don't have loads of them, but um the ones you do are really good. Yeah. Um Did you ever lose any friends because um of what was happening to you? I never lost any friends, but I've lost family. Your mum <laughs> Yeah, my my grandmother wasn't great at all about it. Yeah, I was always really close to her growing up, and like even when we left the UK, I would like be on the phone to her lots all the time. Um, like we bickered a lot, but we were really close. Um, and yeah, she was. I was expecting some kind of surprise and time for her to get used to it, but yeah, she just wouldn't accept it at all. It's mm. been how long now? What since we last uh, yeah, saw her?
0: Long time. Three years, maybe. Yeah. And what was it that she
1: said that um that really was the nail in the coffin for that um she said a lot of things the main thing which has stuck with me is she said that um no one would ever love me and stay with me if i like chose to go ahead <laughs> with this yeah and so we as a family made a decision that
0: until she was able to love you without condition then it, she wasn't a safe person for us as a family
1: yeah because unconditional love is really the only kind of love isn't it yeah I don't if you um, if a certain thing would stop you loving someone then you don't really love them do you I don't think so and what about the rest of um, your wider family have they all been cool about this And yeah um, like it's taken some getting used to but everyone else has been really great or just if not really actively great just kind of yeah fine (laughs) like they don't really care yeah and if you could give give a message to your to your grandma now what would you say just that I've really been thriving (laughs) you know um with living as me and with choosing to go with the medical transition route and um what would you like her to do now I don't really know. I don't know if I can forgive all that. I feel like it's kind of what's done is done and there isn't really anything that can be done to fix it. Um, but if she caught up, you know?
0: Yeah. T- we took a while to catch up, I mean, in very different way and um, it manifested
1: very differently. But if she, if she caught up yeah i think it's important for everyone to catch up just so that they're not ignorant and hateful um whether it would mean that i would want her back in my life i'm not sure but yeah